Awesome. You can have a seat while you're sitting. If you don't mind grabbing your Bibles, go into uh, Ruth chapter 4. Oop, I'm, oh, we're all going to like run over each other. Don't, nothing to see here. <laughs> Ruth chapter 4, I don't know about you. Thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. I don't know about you guys. Uh, uh, I got to drive a lot this week. Um, <laughs> and I use GPS because we all use GPS now, right? Because you don't know how to go anywhere without GPS anymore, do you? It is crazy how I cannot remember the name of a road. I can't remember which way to go, just the most basic of places. So this week I had my GPS all programmed, and I'm zipping uh, a pretty back road I was driving on. And on my GPS I could tell that it was uh, coming to a pretty crazy place. And uh, as I got closer to this left turn I was supposed to take, and it described it like take your nearest second left, which I didn't quite understand what that meant. Realized that I was coming up on one of those, those yellow spoke signs that say where you're supposed to turn. And it had like, okay, so here it goes. And there's like, it looked like a, a kid was trying to draw a buck. I mean, there's just things going everywhere. Um, and so I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I gave it my best shot. Even with, even with GPS, I took my best guess and guessed incorrectly. And my GPS is very kind. It said, moron, turn around. Um, I don't know what GPS you use, but that's the one I use. And so uh, what was crazy was I realized I, I had to go another way to come back, and it's like this windy roads all over the place, just trying to get to this, this very simple place that I wanted to go. Um, that's going to describe the message this morning for you. It's going to take us a little while to get there. We're going to be going around all kinds of windy roads to get there, but we're going to end up where we're supposed to be at the end of, of Ruth uh, chapter 4. At least that's the, the goal and the plan. So, to begin the windiness, I really do need to first give you some details. We are going to observe communion together as believers. And so, this morning, if you're a child of God, towards the middle of the message, more towards the end of the message, I'm going to stop and I'm going to invite you to leave your seats and come receive the elements. And so, just by logistics, you leave that way towards the windows and walk up the aisle towards the front of your section where there are tables set up with the communion elements. The cups are stacked in two, so make sure you get both of those when you return to your seat going around the circle. Because if you go back to your seat with only one, and it's only half communion, don't know what to tell you. So, just kidding, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> then if you do have a real gluten intolerance, we do have um, the, the gluten-free back there at the table by the soundboard. So that's the first thing. Second thing, a couple things that you need to know historically, biblically, in order to comprehend more fully this, con this context of the, the study that we're looking at this morning in Ruth chapter 4. There, there were two um, laws in particular that we're going to look at just a little bit here for just a brief moment that were given by God to, number one, preserve the, the names of the family and then to protect the property of a family. All right, so those are two different laws that kind of come into play in the story of Ruth, particularly as we get here to, to chapter four. The first one I'm going to talk about is the, the law that was given to protect the property of, of the family in in Israel. It's, we hear it as you read through the book of Ruth. It's called the family redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. Um, this is a, a when, basically the idea of this law was to keep the land within the family ownership. So a situation might pop up um, where a family reaches poverty for some reason and their only out is to somehow mortgage the land. And so they would mortgage the land. Well, the, the book of Leviticus gives us some information about how this is supposed to work. But Leviticus chapter 25 says this, the land must never be sold on a permanent basis. For the land belongs to me, God said. So you're only foreigners. <coughs> Excuse me, you're only tenant farmers who are working for me. 
So with every purchase of land, you must grant the seller the right to buy it back. So if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative should buy it back for him. If there's no close relative to buy the land, but the person who sold it gets enough money to buy it back, he then has the right to redeem it from the one who bought it. So that close relative that's mentioned, that is the, the, the family redeemer. So the idea is this family redeemer, a close relative, the person who had to mortgage their land, can come in, repurchase the land in order to keep the land inside of the, the family lineage. Okay, So that's the first law for family redeemer. You'll see that pop up in a second. The second law is something called a Leverite marriage. The idea is to keep the family name alive. It has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. Um, Leverite actually comes from the uh, Latin word uh, levir, which means a, a husband's brother. So here's the idea of the Leverite marriage. A widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendant. So let me, let me put the verses up there so you get a better understanding of what's happening. When brothers live in the same property, and one of the brothers dies without a son, then the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of brother-in-law for her. So how many of you are now like, hi, I married in the wrong family? Okay. The firstborn son she bears will carry the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So if this woman's husband died, his brother would then marry her. The first child that she had would actually be named after the lineage of the, 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 the dead husband so that his name would perpetuate and continue on. Um, clear as mud, right? True. Okay, so those are two basic things I want to get there for you. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, Book of Ruth. I'm not going to preach chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, we ain't got time for that. I barely got time for chapter 4. So, um, And I'm on cold medicine, so buckle up. I'm only responsible for half of what I say, I think. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so in, Levit in Ruth chapter 1, uh, you have the horrible story of Naomi moving with her husband, Elimelech, to Moab. Elimelech dies, and then uh, beyond belief, crazy part, Malon and Chilion, her children die, and now Naomi is a, a, a widowed woman without children in a pagan land, and now she heads back home towards Bethlehem, and she's bitter, and she's angry. But what we continue to see in that first chapter is that there were little glimpses here and there of God being not only alert, but active in Naomi's life. So the takeaway from chapter one was this. God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times, even in those times where you don't sense it or feel it. Ruth chapter two, Ruth goes into a field, just happens to end up in Boaz's field because, you know, just so happens, great coincidence, right? And Boaz just happens to show up when Ruth is there. And they have this interaction, and, and you get to see just glimpses of the fact that God has a plan that neither Ruth nor Naomi were aware of. And we walked away saying, even in darkness, if we look back, we can see the fingerprints of God in our life. Chapter 3, sketchy chapter. Last week, we were all a little uncomfortable based on some things that were happening in that chapter. I will, I will just say this. Ruth proposed marriage to Boaz. Very uh, 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 un unlikely or unlike the, time of the, uh, the period of time. Um, very different for the period of time. Uh, and Boaz's response to her was, I would love to, however, there is another person who has the right to marry you based on that Leverite marriage thing because he's a closer relative. And he did the, the thing marked by integrity, the thing with character, and said we still need to handle this the right way, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
What we walked out of here last week with is this, knowing the promise of our redemption must fill us with peace as we wait for him to work out all the details. Because the last thing Boaz said to Ruth was, I got you. It's going to take me a little while, but I got you. And that leads us to chapter 4. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Boaz went to the gate of the town, sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. And Boaz said to him, come over here and sit down. So the man went over and sat down. Okay, so back up, town gate. So the town gate, he went to the city's gate. This town gate, this city's gate was the place outside of the city. So you had the city wall that surrounded it for defense. And it had a main gate. Be about 13 feet wide is what we've found in, in a lot of other places, about 13 feet wide. And, and it would be the place of business, a place of justice, a place of wisdom, a place of counsel, a place of encouragement. The conversations that happened at the town gate were much, I'm sure, like the ones that happen out in our lobby every Sunday. Okay? Packed with meaning, encouragement, pointing people to Jesus. I'm sure that happens all the time. Just inside the gate, there were three chambers on each side. They were about seven feet wide by 14 and a half feet deep. Those were actually the places that the soldiers would stay, the guards would stay there, right inside the city gate for another added level of, of protection. And so now Boaz says, um, when, in chapter 3, when he was at the threshing floor, that's outside of the city gate, he went back towards home, and instead of going through the city gate and going home, he sat down at the city gate. He sat down, it was time for court. And when he sat there, and I, my Christian Standard Bible, the one I preach out of here, kind of misses the nuance here. It says, soon the family redeemer that Boaz had spoken about came by. That word soon is, is a word that we translate other places like this. Behold! Or, lo! It's the same word that was used when Ruth just happened, behold, to end up at Boaz's field. It's the same word that was used when Boaz just happened to stop by. Lo! It's the same word last week we looked at when Boaz woke up at midnight and behold, there was a woman. It's that same shock. So the author here is trying to get us to understand this is significant that it just so happened that this fellow, this other family redeemer who was closely related to Elimelech in some way, just so happened to pass by when Boaz came to the town gate. It's fascinating to me that in a book that highlights names, Right? Remember the names? Elimelech, my God is king. Naomi, sweetie pie, sweetness. Mara, bitter. Orpa, neck. That was one of our favorites, right? Neck, yep. Can't forget Malon and Chilion, which is sickly and dying. I mean, so those names were really significant in the book of Ruth. And you get to this, this other family redeemer, this, this other friend, this other person. And if you translate it literally here, I'll give you the Hebrew word, now that it matters. The Hebrew word, this is the guy's name. Ready? Poloni Almoni. Poloni, Almoni. It's kind of like hodgepodge, helter-skelter, heebie-jeebies. I mean, the whole idea is for it to rhyme. Palmoni, Almoni. What does it mean? It means Mr. So-and-so. Not even given the worth of a name because of what he does and the choice that he makes here in a few verses. Come here, Mr. So-and-so. Have a seat. We have something to talk about. And if you've been reading the book of Ruth with us, if you've been following along with us the past few weeks, you know that there is this tension that is building up. Who's going to get the girl? But in the middle of that tension, Boaz still shows integrity and character. 
He doesn't try to cut a backroom deal. Instead, he does everything in public with witnesses and with full legality. Look at verse 2. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said to them, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So he's gathered the ten elders, the, the collective jury, to hear the case so there'll be official witnesses. And as you can imagine, something like this happens in public, a crowd gathers. So you have this crowd gathering and, 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 and Boaz says, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, um, I wanted to inform you, is what the Christian Standard Bible says. The English Standard Bible says, I wanted to bring this matter to your attention. If you translate each word individually, it's an idiom from the Hebrew that says, I wanted to uncover your ear. The picture of the men having the long hair, and you're going to walk up and move the hair and whisper in his ear to make sure he heard you. See, Hebrew is a beautiful language and an ugly language all at the same time. So there you go. I wanted to uncover your ear. I wanted to tell you about something so important. I wanted to lay this before your feet. I wanted to make sure that you heard this from me and not anybody else. This is the most important thing that I can express to you right now in this moment. And when you hear him, you expect him to talk about Ruth. But he doesn't. In front of all these guys, Mr. So-and-so, I want to make you aware of an opportunity that is rightly yours. Okay, there's a chunk of land in our extended family, it's become available because of Naomi's situation. Are you interested? You get the sense that Boaz barely gets the words out. Look at the end of, look at verse 4 again. I should inform you, buy it back in the presence. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you don't want to redeem it, tell me so I'll know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it. And I'm next after you. I want to redeem it! Mr. So-and-so answered. I'll take it! Where do I sign? This is a great opportunity. I can get this land for really cheap. I, I mean, I had to put up with Naomi for a little while, but that's okay. It still seems worth an end. Let's do this deal. Now, if you're the first time reading through this story of Ruth, you hear that, and you expect, it's like, what just happened? What was Boaz thinking? You think Naomi was angry and bitter before? She's going to be livid now. You know, Boaz, in chapter 3, could have just proceeded and, bless you, and accepted, <laughs> accepted uh, uh, Ruth's marriage proposal and just moved ahead. Nobody would have known. Nobody would have been any the wiser. But he didn't. Why? Because there is a process and there is a law. And that law needed to be satisfied, not bypassed. And Boaz was going to satisfy the law. But before the fellow signs on the dotted line, Boaz gives the rest of the information in verse 5. Boaz said to him, On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you'll acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on this property. See, Boaz acts... It's, this is an unethical. This is completely shrewd. I mean, this is strategic marketing. He creates the excitement. I want you to be so excited. Look at all the things you can do here at this timeshare. It's amazing. And then, gives the price. The land can be yours. Completely yours. So cheap. Great land. Been in our family forever. You're going to get a great deal. But wait, there's more. 
you get the barren Moabite widow who is for all intents and purposes homeless, helpless, and hopeless. You see how Ruth was presented in this deal? You can tell what the fellow thought, verse 6. Mr. So-and-so replied, I can't redeem it myself or I'll ruin my own inheritance. You take the right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Because listen, I, I can't spend money out of my own, my own accounts. I mean, I could do that if I was going to own something in the end. I mean, honestly, if, if, I, if I do this and I marry Ruth and Ruth remains barren, no children, then eventually this land that I get in the same deal that I get Ruth, eventually that land becomes mine free and clear. My, I'm wealthier, my children get a bigger inheritance, but, but if for some reason I, I have a child with Ruth, then that child not only has claim to that land, but he has claim to part of my inheritance as well. And I can't take that chance. I can't take the chance to spend my, my kids' inheritance money to buy a field they, that they may never own. The cost is way too great. I can't do this. You get a little commentary in verse 7. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So, Mr. So-and-so removed his sandal and said to Boaz, go ahead, buy back the property yourself. All right, anybody else got questions? I mean, this is, I got questions. So, so, so what they just said is, in order to finish a, a business deal of selling a property, the person who was releasing the property had to re remove the shoe. So, so, I mean, so it literally is looking like this. It's like, okay, so it's yours. So, so here's the question. Does that mean if I'm good at business, I walk around like this all day? And do you walk into somebody's closet and like see all these single shoes and be like, wow, there's his portfolio. That's pretty amazing. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of questions involved with this, but that's just the culture of the day, and that is exactly what, what they would do. And so the fellow says, here, you, you take it. I can't. I, just, I can't. I can't risk it. I can't afford it. The point is now the deal is done. Verse 9. Boaz said to the elders of the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name won't disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who are at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Oh, yeah, Boaz gets the girl, Right? Cinderella gets her glass slipper. What we can't miss in this is as fast as Mr. So-and-so ran away from the deal when he counted the cost, the risks for Mr. So-and-so are the exact same risk that Boaz was facing. But Boaz was willing to step in and provide redemption. And, and I'm going to be really honest, <laughs> um, and even to my shame, 
Um, I have preached through the book of Ruth before. I've actually preached through the book of Ruth here at Uniontown before about five, six years ago. I know you all were like, I knew that. No, you didn't. The title of the sermon series five or six years ago was Ruth's Redemption. But what I have become more convinced of is this story has, it has to do with Ruth's redemption, but on a bigger scale, it has to do with Naomi's redemption. And on a much bigger scale, we're actually talking about Elimelech's redemption. Because it's the name of Elimelech that is now going to continue. It's the property of Elimelech that has now been, been protected. And Boaz has jumped into the middle of this really messy situation. He's jumped into the middle of all this chaos and crisis and, and provided this redemption. And what did he get out of the deal? A lot of baggage. He gets this poor, barren, foreign widow and an angry, bitter mother-in-law who's, who's publicly declared that she is mad at God and empty. But even in the middle of that, what Boaz is doing is demonstrating that covenant faithfulness we talked about a couple weeks ago, that chesed. He, he's making it his business to take care of them. Because they have a need, and he has the ability. And everybody at that city gate would look at Boaz like he was crazy. See how fast Mr. So-and-so ran away? You should run away too. And, and what you get in this moment in the story of Ruth is, is this, this picture of grace rising up from the, from the haze. Boaz is acting because of his character. Boaz is acting because of his integrity. Boaz is acting because of his covenant faithfulness, his chesed-type love towards Ruth, Naomi, and Elimelech. What's happening in this moment is Boaz isn't making a decision because of the value that Ruth is bringing to his life. He's making the decision because he's a man of grace. And it's the exact same for you and my redemption. We, we've, been, we've been set free. We've been released from our bondage. Uh, we've had all of these happen, things happen to us, this stuff dumped on us because of the kindness, love, mercy and grace of God. Not because we cleaned ourselves up enough to be approved in his eyes. Not because we've made so many improvements through our counseling and, 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 and therapy that, that, that we've worked through all of our issues so now God will take us. We were redeemed while we were sinners. We were redeemed when, when we brought the least amount of value possible into the presence of God. Do you ever feel like you bring a very low amount of value into your relationship with God? Man, I'm going to tell you right now. There's people sitting in this room who are like, I, I get it, I love it, I'm going to keep coming to cultural church, I'm going to be a part of cultural church, I'm going to sing cultural church songs, and I'm going to do the cultural church thing, but, but you're, when you talk about coming to know Jesus, I, I can't do that because you don't know who I am, Frank, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, I've done things, and there's no way I could be accepted. God can't possibly look at me and see anything of worth, anything of value. Listen, let me explain something to you. What he sees in you has more to do with him than it does to do with you. What is this coming to faith in Jesus thing, Frank? It's not complicated. There's no formula. There's no script. Okay? There's no specific. I, here it is. I pray that none of you have ever experienced this. Have you ever been like near drowning before? 
in the deepest of water, and, and you just can't keep your nose above water, and you just, it just seems like your legs are getting heavier and heavier and more tired and more tired, and, and, and the times above the water are getting fewer and further between from the times that you go under the water, and you're just trying desperately to get your, your nose above water, and you can see the lifeguard at a distance, and so, so all you can do in that moment is cry out, save me, get me out of the water, pull me out. That's what I mean when I, come, when I say coming to Jesus. You are broken and drowning in your own sin, and there's only one that can pull you out of it. And it's him. And it's only him. I am convinced that there are people here this morning who have heard the message of the gospel a thousand times and have never responded. And so in a few moments, when we take communion together and leave our seats to come gather the elements, I would encourage you, if you've never if you have questions about Jesus, you haven't crossed from death to life, you haven't trusted him, then I'm going to ask that as everybody else comes up to grab the elements, you come forward over to those doors over there where our staff and the elders will be over there waiting to meet with you, talk with you, pray with you, answer your questions, walk you through that process. Because that's far more important than anything else we do this morning. Now, believer, let me, let me say something to you. We can get to the place where we feel like we have no value as well, can't we? I talked to somebody this week who's convinced that they're a failure. And, and, and the fact that they have failed is absolutely true. But they're not a failure. They're a child of God who's failed. That's not a failure. You know how God sees you, child of God? You know what value you hold? Your value is tied to what somebody is willing to pay for you. What was God willing to pay for you? See, we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, Peter says. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Your value is tied to what somebody is willing to pay for you. And Jesus paid it all for you. And so as we come to the tables this morning and celebrate communion, I want to encourage you to reflect on, on what it cost and what your redemption cost. And I want to encourage you to come, get the elements, return to your seat, spend just a moment or two just reflecting on what it cost. And again, if you are here this morning and you, you have questions, then I'm going to encourage you as everybody comes to gather the elements, that you just head to that door and get your questions answered. All right, Father, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate you. Thank you for the purchase that we have experienced, the fact that Christ paid it all for us. Lord, may we celebrate this moment well. I pray you'd give boldness and courage to to the one with us this morning who who doesn't know Christ. I pray that you would get them out of their seats, get them in front of somebody. Father, get them talking. Father, I ask that in this moment that they would meet you for the first time that they would come to know that they are loved and they are valued and that you were willing to send your son Jesus Christ to die for them. Father, we commit this time to you and ask that you would move among us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, you can stand and if you would come receive the elements, return to your seats. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul leaves instructions for the church at Corinth. 
about the Lord's Supper, about communion. He says this to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on that night that Jesus betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Father, thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. As we take and eat, remember, remember what it costs. took the cup after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me father for the picture of the shed blood of our savior Jesus Christ we give you thanks knowing that through his sacrifice his humility his offering that we have been forgiven of our sins and set free. Amen. As you drink, remember what it costs. So we've got to finish the story. Verse 13 of Ruth chapter 4. It all comes down to this. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He slept with her. And the Lord granted conception to her. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became like a mother to him. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And many of you can relate to this. And I'm sorry. But for Naomi, everything changed in that moment. Think think about her sitting at home and having her husband, Elimelech, come home and say, babe, we've got to go. We we can't stay here anymore. There's no food. There's a famine. We've got to go. We, we've got to get out of Bethlehem. We've got to find food or else, or, 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 or else I don't know what's going to happen. Even our little boys will die. We've got to go. And, and for, for Naomi to, to follow Elimelech out of Bethlehem towards Moab, leaving everything she was familiar with, leaving 
family, leaving friends, leave, leaving what she has known her entire life behind as she headed to Moab with Elimelech. But this was the best thing to do. This was what, this was what was going to save them. Until her husband Elimelech died. And now she's a, a widow in a foreign land. No one to look out for her, but, but she's got her two boys, right? She's got her two boys, Malon and Chilion. And then, and then they, they grow and they, they bring home that special one. And both of them bring home pagan Moabitess. Women who, who worship a, a false god who requires child sacrifice. That is not anything that a grandmom ever wants to hear. So what is she going to do? And then the unthinkable happens and, and both Malon and Chilean, both of her boys die. She heads back to Bethlehem. She is bitter. She is angry. She is empty. She is complaining about everything. Even the things she should be thankful for, she is finding a way to complain about. She gets into Bethlehem. The women are like, isn't that Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter one. And, and, and this crazy unfolding just keeps happening and, and now she stands before the women and says, I am totally, 100% empty. I have nothing. But now, there's giggles, burps, smells, drool, the cooing and all of the other obnoxious noises that an infant makes. She's crossed from feeling empty to feeling full, and it was an incredibly difficult road, and the pain's still there. Please don't hear me saying the pain just goes away. Uh, there's emptiness still in her. I'm sure there's a groaning of her soul, but in the groaning of her soul, she is reminded that God is still good, even in those dark spaces, even in the middle of the pain, and the reminder of the goodness of God is placed right on her lap, and his name is Obed. Baby Obed. Now, in my Bible, the book of Ruth ends on the next page. And, and I would venture a guess that if, if that was the next page in all of your Bibles, roughly 95% of you would not read the next page of the book of Ruth. But I'm going to, because it's there. You ready? Let's end this thing. Verse 18. <clears throat> now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Okay, that was insightful. Hey, listen. Even in the middle of darkness and struggle, God is loving and caring for his people. Darkness is still dark. Struggles are still in struggle. But God gives his love notes to remind his people that he is there. But here's, here's another takeaway that we need to have. The grace that Boaz and the character that Boaz and the integrity that Boaz continues to show, not just to Ruth, but to everybody. It's amazing, isn't it? This is a man of integrity and character that has risen above all others. Where in the world did it come from? The answer is pretty clear. Those people who have received grace or have been shown grace don't just sit on grace. They show it to other people, right? They recognize the need for the grace that they've experienced in the lives of other people. So how has Boaz been shown grace? Well, 
His dad's name is Salmon. Oh, you guys just think I was making a joke about the fish. Huh. Well, actually, you got to do a little, a little Bible study to understand the rest of this. Because actually, Matthew chapter 1 quotes this genealogy, but adds something to it. And I want you to hear it. You ready? Here we go. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Oh, there he is. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Excuse me? By Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, whose life was spared by God. Seeing Boaz's personal history, I'm sure he has known what it means to be shown grace when you don't exactly deserve it. Though we don't have it recorded, I would be willing to bet that Rahab shared her story many times with her little boy. And so Boaz, buddy, that's why we act with integrity. That's why we show grace to the people who, who other people don't think deserve it. Because I've been shown a grace that is unthinkable. A pagan prostitute has been adopted into the family of God. Boaz, we have much to be thankful for. So do we. What kind of grace have you known? How are you showing it to other people? I think finally, not only is this an incredible picture of grace, not only is it an incredible picture of God's great care, just to, not just to feed the hungry Israelites or to, to love and provide joy for a bitter widow or to provide help for a foreign widow, but through this seemingly impossible situation, God was preparing for the greatest king Israel would ever see. And I'm not talking about David. God is drawing a path to the Messiah all the way back in Genesis. He begins drawing the path to the Messiah and he happens to draw that path right through the life of Rahab the prostitute, right through the life of Ruth the Moabitess, right through the life of Naomi, brings it all the way down right to the place where it lands at the feet of Jesus Christ himself, born in a manger in Bethlehem. See, throughout all of this confusion and chaos and wonder and, and things that just don't make any sense, through all of the darkness and hurt and pain, what God is doing is continuing to draw the line exactly where he needs it to go because it's just like God to use those windy roads to accomplish his purposes. It's seldom a straight line, but it's just like my God to take that goofy yellow road sign that sends you in 17 different directions and somehow go, look, you ended up exactly where you're supposed to be. Why? Because you have a good GPS system? Nope. Because you have an amazing God. A faithful God who will never, ever, ever leave one of his promises unfulfilled. Father, thanks that we have a God like you. I'm reminded of a, a verse that the Israelites used to cling to. But what nation has a God so near to it that that God answers every time they call out to him? God, we are a fortunate people. We have access to you. We have a relationship with you. Father, we have peace with you because of what Jesus Christ did. Father, I am incredibly grateful to know 
that you can continue to be trusted. And Lord, I ask as we, as we reflect on the cost, as we reflect on the value that you have assigned to us, that we would be thankful and grateful and celebrate you well. And then God, for those who are still in the darkness, still in the, the twisty, windy, crazy roads, I pray that you would give them the ability to trust you in those moments, to be able to see your hand of direction and skill. Father, thank you that we can trust you because you are faithful, you've always been faithful, and you always will be faithful. May we trust you more. We believe, but we need help. So we ask that you would help our unbelief in these times. So we thank you. It's in Christ's precious and matchless name I pray. Amen.